We do continue uh, our series on uh, keys to spiritual growth, and today, hopefully, uh, we will complete the lesson on why uh, repentance is one of the keys uh, to spiritual growth. Uh, This is our third week uh, dealing uh, with repentance. I didn't think it would take us this long to uh, work through this lesson, but I'm I'm glad that we've taken our time uh, by your response. I think uh, uh, God has spoken to many people through this, and I appreciate that uh, greatly. So I do want to start with a uh, brief review, since we've actually covered most of the material already, just to bring everybody up to speed because I know some of you have been gone on spring break and uh, you're back now and so uh, uh, let me just say this in a, in a general way just to, to, to lay the, uh, the groundwork the relationship between spiritual growth and repentance is, is really uh, very obvious uh, since spiritual growth is the lifelong process of a Christian's character and conduct being changed to become more and more like Jesus, then repentance is simply becoming sorrowful over any character trait in my life or conduct that is contrary to Christ, accompanied with the intense desire to bring my character and conduct in harmony with Christ. And in essence, that is what repentance is all about. But look at the first point in your sermon notes, just to go a little deeper with this. Repentance, we said, begins with a change of thinking, with a change of thinking. We saw that the word translated repentance in our English Bibles literally means, in the Greek text, a change of mind. And in the Bible... It refers to a person person who has had a change of mind about his sin. The sin I once indulged in with pleasure now becomes disgusting to me, sickening, appalling, abominable, and unacceptable. Uh, James chapter 4 verses 8 and 10 there in your sermon notes. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. There's sinful conduct. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's sinful character. Be miserable. This is that sorrowful aspect of repentance. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Now here are just a few and, and these are not in your sermon notes. Just a few specific examples of individuals who experienced uh, repentance. It was the prophet Isaiah who said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And it's very interesting here, In the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah, he spends that pronouncing woe on the nation for abandoning God and their sin. 
He's very distressed over the political situation in his nation. But once he has this encounter with God, he says, wait a minute, I need to pronounce woe on me. I'm a sinner just like the rest of the people in this nation. And my sin has been clearly demonstrated through my lips that just express what's in my heart. Uh, True repentance. Peter, another great example, fell down, if you remember, at the feet of Jesus in the boat. And he said, depart from me. Why? For I am a sinful man, O Lord. The apostle Paul cried out, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? And then we read this of the tax collector in Luke 18. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. So true repentance is not grieving the fact that I got caught. It's not grieving the consequences of my sin. It's grieving the fact that I could do or even think something like that. I suddenly realize that the heart of the problem is not anything out there or someone sitting next to me. No, the problem is right in here with me. Look at the second point in your notes. Repentance, we saw, is, a, is accompanied by a turning. True repentance involves doing what? A complete about-face. It's turning from sin to follow Jesus Christ. Isaiah 55, verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And notice, let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. Acts 3, verses 19 and 20, Repent of your sins. And notice, turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, you turned to God from idols to serve a true and living God. Look at the third point in your notes. Repentance results in transformation. It begins with a change of thinking, and then it involves a turning from sin to follow Christ, but it all results in transformation. The proof of authentic Repentance is a changed life. Uh, Matthew 3, verse 8, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. And then the next statement in your notes provides what I believe is a good definition of true biblical repentance. Authentic repentance begins with a change of mind about sin which leads to a change in direction towards God, which leads to a change of behavior in my life. And notice the emphasis on change. That is what repentance is all about. First, a change of mind about sin that leads to a change of direction towards God, which leads to a change of behavior in my life. We then turned our attention to what I believe is the greatest passage in the entire Bible on repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. And follow along in your notes as we look at these verses. It says, For the sorrow 
that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. And that's just not referring to initial conversion, but yes, the initial conversion, but even going forward as a believer to know God's continual power and deliverance in your life. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, now he begins to describe what true repentance is. For behold, the earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Now, if you have not been here, the great takeaway from this passage, and this is the one thing I would not want you to miss, the one thing I would want you to take home with you, is that repentance is a process that you have to work through and not just a single act of confessing your sin to God. True repentance is a process you have to work through. It's not just a single act of confessing your sin. And in these verses, we discover nine key words which refers to different levels of repentance we are to work through. And God wants me to plunge into the very depths of repentance because the deeper my repentance, the deeper my spiritual growth in Christ-like character. Now, we've already covered the first five that you find in your notes. So again, let's quickly review, and then we will finish up looking at those final four. The first step in repentance, it all begins right here, godly sorrow. Being sorry for the sin, not merely its consequences. Psalm 38, verse 18, I confess my sins, and I am deeply, deeply sorry for what I have done. So the first step in repentance is that I stop trying to justify my sin. I stop trying to excuse or minimize my sin. I stop trying to blame others or my circumstances for my sin, and I start owning up to my sin. I assume full responsibility for my attitudes, my actions. And again, I realize the problem isn't anything or anyone out there. The problem's right here in Andy Merritt's heart. And that's the issue before God. Now, you remember for each of these levels of repentance, each of these steps, for each one I've given you a test question. This has been, as I mentioned last week, probably one of the greatest tools in my personal life. These are questions that I used to assist me when I have known failure, when I've known sin, to work through the repentance process. So the first question is, do I mourn my sin or merely the fact I got caught? Do I mourn my sin? And if I acknowledge I'm just really upset over the fact I got caught, I acknowledge that to God. And I lay myself before God and I said, God, bring me to true godly sorrow, not over the fact of being called or the consequences, but the fact that, again, I could think or do something like that. Look at the second step, the second level of repentance. It's captured by the word earnestness. And I would define that this way, being more concerned with being right with God than protecting my image before others. 
And this is a huge one because we're all very prideful people. And we all tend to wear masks. And we're good at putting on shows. We're good at projecting a certain image about ourselves. It's not actually maybe reality. Um, We looked at King David on this point, who after committing adultery, after committing murder, he literally tried for months to cover all of that up, to hide it, in order to save face before the people. But we saw how God eventually brought great conviction upon David, and he broke David, and he brought him to repentance. And when David was brought to repentance, this is what he said, Psalm 32, verse 5, Finally, finally, I confessed all my sins to you, and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. And he's referring not only before God, before the people of Israel, before others. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Isn't that wonderful? An adulterer, a murderer who tried to conceal his sin said, I've been forgiven. All my guilt is gone. But it, it, he had to be brought to that place where being right with God was more important than saving face before the people. So here's the simple test question. Which is more important? Being right with God or looking good to others? So am I willing to really get honest? Because in true brokenness, there's openness. There's not, that's one of the telltale signs of a person knows true repentance. He's willing to be open and transparent about his failures. Look at the third step, the third level of repentance, vindication. And this is an intense desire to clear my name by confessing and forsaking the sin. Proverbs 28, verse 13, He who conceals his transgression, tries to hide them, will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Repentance not only involves confessing sin, but what? Forsaking sin. We talk much about the fact that confessing sin without changing conduct is hypocrisy. So the test question here, which is one of the truest tests of repentance, what would I do if I knew I would never be found out by by men? Of course, you're going to be found out by God. You can't get away with anything with God. But what would you do if you knew you would never be found out by others? That, that shows the state of your heart. I won't name them. They're sitting here. I understood uh, some of our seniors uh, had some interesting discussion around this question. One said, well, if I knew I would never be found out, I would rob a bank. Another one said, I would speed because I'd like to go fast. So the two of them got together. And one's going to rob the bank. The other one's going to be the driver of the getaway car. So uh, the fourth step, the fourth level, indignation, indignation. And this is anger over the shame my sin has brought God's name, which motivates me to restore what is possible. Anger over the shame my sin has brought God's name, which motivates me to restore what is possible. Sin is always selfish. It's always taking from others. And again, it might not necessarily be finances. It could be that. But it could be 
slandering a person's reputation. It could be a million and one different things. Look at Luke 19, verses 8 and 9. This is Zacchaeus. Great example of true repentance, which creates a desire to restore. If I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. And Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. And he didn't mean that by him restoring, he was, he was you know, paying for his salvation. Jesus was just acknowledging the fact that this man is willing to restore what he cheated people of is a clear indication that he's known true repentance. And he's come to me in faith with, his, with the commitment to follow me. So here's the test question I need to ask. Have I restored what is restorable? Am I committed to that? It's not always possible, but as far as it's possible with me, have I restored what is restorable? The fifth, and this is where we ended last Sunday, is the word fear. And this is accepting God's discipline for my sin as a reminder that the pain of sin outweighs the pleasure of sin. Accepting God's discipline for my sin as a reminder that the pain of sin outweighs the pleasure of sin. Hebrews 12, 11, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. Uh, where we focused here, and uh, because this is a uh, sort of a great uh, uh, failure in the church, especially in the West, we have this concept that if God forgives, then that removes all consequences. No. No. God forgives, but there often remains consequences. And consequences, now listen very carefully, if you weren't here, because we spent some good bit of time on this, but we can't now. Consequences that God uses not to condemn you, not to punish you, because Jesus already took that judgment punishment for you. But He uses the consequences to keep you from sin going forward, to keep you close to Him. I mean, I, I, how many times, I remember when our children were growing up, you know, they were caught in act. Kathy took them off alone to discipline them, to give them a little bit of the rod, a little bit of spanking, and they'd say, oh, Daddy, forgive me. And yes, Jonathan, I forgive you. But there's the issue of you learning obedience. And this spanking hopefully will be a reminder to you going forward that the pain of sin, far, uh, or the the. the uh, the pain of sin far outweighs the pleasure of sin. So, so God, yes, He forgives, but He allows consequences time, again, for your spiritual benefit and your good uh, in order uh, to keep you from sin in the future and keep you close to Him. So the test question is, do I resist or submit to God's discipline? In other words, uh, after my failure, as I've, I've, I've known God's forgiveness, as I begin to see certain consequences, do I, do I get upset with God over that? Or do I submit and humble myself, acknowledging, yes, I need this. Thank you that you're a loving Father, and you know what's best, not me. 
And then the section, here's the here, and this is all new material from this point on, the word longing. And this is an extremely important point in relationship to the repentance process. Longing is an intense desire to return to Christ as my first love. If I had to say one thing that authentic repentance produces, it would be this. In true repentance, it produces this intense desire, this intense longing to return to Christ as my first love. Revelation 2, 4, and 5 talks about the loss of first love. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. Now listen, beloved, listen carefully. At the heart of all true repentance is the reality that sin, at its very essence, is an act of spiritual adultery that grieves and wounds the heart of God. Repentance is ending my love affair with sin and returning to Christ as my first love. I can't say it any more simply or clearer than that. What would you think of a marriage partner who got involved in an affair, asked their spouse's forgiveness, but then returned to the affair and did this over and over and over and over and over again? Don't you think you would question the sincerity of the repentance? Well, it's no different with God. You cannot return to Christ until you end your affair with sin. Now, let's just take just a moment to see the importance of maintaining Christ as your first love and the consequences if you fail to do so. And what I'm going to show you right now had a, a, a marked impact upon my life. And, and I remember God drove this into my heart. Uh, I think within the first six months of uh, coming on staff here at Edgewood, back in 1977. Uh, uh, but when we talk about Christ being your first love, let's not make this complicated. It just means that you realize there's nothing more important than your relationship with Christ. That that is the number one priority. That's the number one goal. That's one number one passion in your life. And you realize that it is a relationship with Christ. And it's a two-way street. And, and He's blessed you. And now you're to reciprocate uh, that and become invested in that uh, relationship. Well, take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 3. I want to show you something that's uh, pretty startling when you see it in its context. Revelation 3, most of you are familiar with his message to the church at Laodicea. Remember in uh, chapters 2 and 3, through the Apostle John, uh, Jesus brings seven messages to seven different churches. And for each church, he brings typically a commendation, uh, but then he also brings rebuke, uh, issues they need to deal with and address and repent of. And... Uh, when you get to the church of Laodicea, this is what he says. Let's begin at verse 15. He says to this church, chapter 3, verse 15, I know your deeds, and I know that you're not cold and you're not hot. 
I wish you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. In other words, what he's basically saying, your complacency, your apathy, you riding the fence, it literally nauseates me. Verse 17, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. What is he saying? He says, you're walking in total deception. You think you're okay spiritually. But in reality... You're about as far away from me as you possibly could be. You're still going through all the motions. Oh, you're coming to church. You're going through all the rituals. You're paying your tithes. You're singing the songs. But I don't have your heart. Not only do I not have your heart, you're just just in total blindness and darkness about your situation, about where you are. And then he says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And that I saw to uh, anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Notice, where's this church gotten to? Jesus is outside the church. He's knocking on the door, trying to get back in. And he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now, this is what I want to point out. John wrote the book of Revelation about 95 A.D. Now, when you go back, we won't turn there now, but when you go back to the book of Colossians, which was written in 60 to 62 A.D., The church of Laodicea is mentioned in the last chapter. And the inference is, at the time of writing the book of Colossians, 60 to 62 A.D., this was a church that was red hot for Christ, that was passionate for Christ. He was their first love. He was their greatest passion and pursuit. And then you've got to ask yourself, okay, 62 A.D., How, how, in the space of 35 years, could a church go from the place where he says, you know, you're red hot for me, and he has his intimate relationship with them, to where he says, you nauseate me. You nauseate me with your lukewarmness, your apathy, and your total deception and blindness about where you are. Well, in the message of Christ to the seven churches, you see how it happens. And this drives home better than anything I know the importance of being diligent to maintain Christ as your first love, to make your priority your relationship with Christ. You know where it all begins? The first church was what? Ephesus. We just read a moment ago, and what was their great failure? They left their first love. They were doing a lot of wonderful things, and he commends them for doing a lot of wonderful things. But he said, you've left your first love. No longer is your relationship with me the most important thing. It's the things you do. It's the things you're involved in, even, the men, even good things. But you've lost your heart of devotion for me. And what 
Jesus recognized the moment you do that, it's inevitable that the value you place on Christ is going to begin to diminish and the value of other things is going to begin to increase. And where does that lead you? To the next church, Smyrna. And you know what he mentions there? A fear of suffering. Now notice the, how this inevitably works. If I be, lose Christ as my first love, I'm not focusing on my relationship with Christ. I'm just going through the motions or going through the rituals or whatever, even being very busy in a lot of good things. Again, he's going to begin to lose his value, his beauty, his majesty, his glory in my sight. And listen, folks, you are only willing to suffer for that which you value. And when, you, when your value of Christ begins to diminish, you know what you're going to find in your life? And some of you are experiencing this now. You're scared to make a stand for Jesus. You're scared to speak up for Jesus. You're scared of the consequences of following Jesus, of paying the price that's going to be demanded in, 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 a, in a secular culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. And then you know what the third step is? You ought to be able to pick it up right off the bat. Compromise. I, be, I lose the infinite beauty and value of Jesus, I, which is seen in this, I begin to develop this fear of making a stand for Him, of paying the price of following Him, which inevitably, the church at Pergamum, leads to doctrinal compromise. They began to water down God's Word. They began to put all the focus on all the benefits of Christianity and neglecting all the responsibilities of Christianity. It, began, it became all about them. They now began to see God as a tool to accomplish what they wanted instead of realizing, no, I am God's tool to accomplish His will. And so they began to focus on all the blessings, but left all the hard... You know, they... We, we leave repentance out. We leave obedience out. We leave holiness out. Whole focus is on God, just loving God. And I can do anything. And He's going to make all my dreams come true. And then where does that lead to? The fourth church, Thyatira. Moral compromise. Once you begin dilly-dallying with God's Word and watering it down, compromising, it inevitably will lead to disobedience. Moral compromise. And then you go to what? Where there's no condemnation at all for the church of Philadelphia, so you jump to the church at Sardis, and he says to them, you have a name that lives, but you are dead. Because reality is, when you begin to walk in sin, when you begin to walk in doctrinal and moral compromise, your spiritual growth stops. And now you're in the withering process. Withering up right on the very vine of Christ. Not producing the fruit that he desires. And then where does it all lead? Well, because they didn't acknowledge their sin, you end up at Laodicea. Complacent, apathetic, indifferent, and even worst of all, blind to, to even that that's reality. All I'm trying to say is, 
we need to understand as believers the danger of leaving our first love. The danger of not seeing our relationship with Christ being the number one priority in our lives. So the test question, the test question, do I see how close I can get to sin or how close I can get to God? See, there are a lot of believers, they always want to try to push the envelope. You know, the question is, well, how far can I go with this? The question is, how close do you want to get to God? And then follow Him. Look at the next one, seven. Zeal. I love this one. This is a beautiful one. Bearing the scars of my sin, not as a mark of disqualification, but as a testimony of God's forgiveness and healing. Bearing the scars of my sin, not as a mark of disqualification, but as a testimony of God's forgiveness and healing. Look at Psalm 51. And again, don't miss the context. This is another Psalm of David that he wrote dealing with his repentance over his adultery and his murder. He wrote Psalm 32 that we've already looked at, and here's the second one he wrote on that occasion, Psalm 51. And notice what he says. Now, put it in its context. 51, he's acknowledging his sin before God, and toward the end of the psalm, he says, Restore to me again the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. Then, notice where he says this is going to lead. Then I will teach your ways to other sinners, and they, guilty like me, will repent and return to you. See, David is acknowledging that there is forgiveness with God. And yes, there's consequences, and those consequences leave wounds, and those wounds leave scars. But those scars, in essence, are a testimony of God's healing, God's forgiveness. And God wants to use my failure as an opportunity to take His grace to others as I've known His forgiveness and His grace. Uh, So the choice that you have is to hide the scars of your past sin in shame, or you can bear them as a testimony of God's grace. So here's the test question. Am I reaching out in compassion to restore others who have sinned? See, when there's true repentance, the simple point is, it creates a more tender heart towards others. You don't become hard. You don't become condemning. You don't become judgmental. You realize There I would be if it were not for the grace of God. Or you even realize, I once was there. But God brought me out of it, and God can do the same thing for that individual as well. Look at the eighth thing, avenging of wrong. And this is one of the most neglected, and and you need to be very attentive right here. This is an intense desire never to tolerate sin but to kill sin before it kills me or others. An intense desire never to tolerate sin, but to kill sin before it kills me or others. Colossians 3 verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. The Scottish theologian David Brown wrote, If you don't kill sin... Sin will kill you. I mean, look at sin as the worst terrorist on planet Earth right now. That's sin. 
Sin has one goal, and that's to kill you. And you're either going to kill the sin, or that sin's going to eventually get you. The Puritan Richard Baxter wrote, Use sin as it will use you. Spare it not, for it will not spare you. It is your murderer, and the murderer of the world. Use it, therefore, as a murderer should be used. Kill it before it kills you. The test question. Here it is. Am I aggressively nipping sin in the bud in my thought life? Now, before we move on, let me give some practical guidance about how to do that. Because that's where the battle is. It's right here in the, in the mind. Now, here's the key truth here. This, this is not in your sermon notes. But just, just listen carefully. I lose the battle with sin. Listen now. I lose the battle with sin not when the deed is done, but when I entertain it in my mind. When I take the bait. You know, a great example of this, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, the key word in, that, in that, those verses is the word look, blepo in the Greek text. And that word doesn't mean just a casual glance. It means deliberately staring for the express purpose of feeding my lust. It means staring in order to imagine, in order to fantasize, to let my mind just go wild. A uh, good example, uh, David. Go, let's go back to David. We didn't go into the details of that story, but remember, uh, number one mistake David made, he, he shouldn't even been in Jerusalem at the time. He should have been with his army. But he didn't go because he'd gotten a little lazy, gotten a little complacent, gotten a little apathetic, gotten a little selfish. So he just gave it to some of his other commanders. And you remember, he went up on his roof. Apparently it was a hot night. Went up on his roof, and he's just overlooking Jerusalem. And then by chance, he, he didn't intend to come across this. It was purely accidental. There with Bathsheba bathing on a roof below his. And he could not have missed this was a beautiful woman. There was no sin in that. He actually accidentally came upon the scene. The question was, how would he respond when it happened? And instead of turning away and bouncing his thoughts back on God, he began to what? Fantasize. He began to imagine. He began to entertain, which led to what? An invitation for her to come to his room where he committed adultery with her. And so, again, Satan has the ability to tempt. That's not sin in and of itself. It's the next step. Do you, the moment that comes, do you, are you training yourself to bounce your thoughts off of that back onto God? And I'll tell you, 
I have, and I have not arrived. But let me tell you a wonderful technique that, that uh, I use that I found extremely effective. And that's by just asking the right questions at the point of when I'm tempted. And these questions take me right back to God. And let me give them to you real quick. There, there's five of them. I ask, is this temptation a violation of the Scriptures? Because I know no one really breaks God's laws, rather you're broken on them. So is this a, a violation of Scripture? The second question I ask, what have been the consequences in the lives of other people who have yielded to this sin? In other words, learn from the mistakes of others. Like we've looked at King David. So, so ask, what have been the consequences in the lives of others who have yielded to this sin? The third question, if I yield to this temptation, what will be the consequences in my life? To my family, to my friends, to my work, to my future. Now remember folks, don't ever forget this. Satan's bait only hides the hook. What he's after is to hook you and to hurt you and to hurt those you love. And he's a master at hiding that hook with a bait. A bait that he knows you're vulnerable to, that you you find attractive. And that's why you have to develop the spiritual habit of bouncing your thoughts off of that which is unacceptable to put it back on God and His truth and that which is acceptable. Here's a fourth one. Will yielding to this temptation truly satisfy me or only stir up stronger desires? Remember, sin provides momentary satisfaction with long-term consequences. What is sin's lie? Sin's lie is, one time won't hurt you. Let me give you a great illustration at this point. It's a little grisly, but it's the way an Eskimo kills a wolf. And it's an incredible illustration of how temptation, if you don't nip it in the bud, can eventually destroy you. It says, first the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood, and another, and another, until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood, like a blood popsicle. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. When the wolf follows the scent and discovers the bait, he licks it, tasting the fresh, frozen blood. He begins to lick faster, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. So great becomes the craving for blood that the wolf does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue. Nor does he recognize the instant at which 